Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by the travel writer and biographer Sarah Wheeler, discussing her book, Mud and Stars, Travels in Russia with Pushkin and Other Geniuses of the Golden Age. Among Sarah's previous books are Oh My America, Six Women and Their Second Acts in a New World, and books on the polar regions, The Magnetic North on the Arctic and Terra Incognita on Antarctica. Her book, Access All Areas is Selected Writings Across Two Decades. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start in the border regions, Sarah, of Western Russia and Ukraine, because we cannot not. You reveal your politics in Mud and Stars, calling out President Vladimir Putin to Russians you meet on your travels. For someone who loves Russia, who loves its language, its writers, the land, not its leader. How do you manage at a time like this? With great difficulty, Michelle, I think like everybody else, I'm filled with horror and sadness at the tragedy that's unfolding. It is a tragedy, of course, because it's so pointless. I guess all war is pointless, but this one seems particularly so. Uh, so I feel grief um, and horror for the people um, of Ukraine and what they're going through and their suffering. And I also feel tremendous pain on behalf of the Russians, whom I met through many, many, many months of traveling spread over some years in Russia. Now, the population of Russia is about 144 million, I believe, and almost all of those 144 million are not warmongers, not oligarchs, not rich, not Putin, not in Putin's entourage, and they don't want war. It's not their war, and I feel desperate for them. The situation, of course, was nuanced when I was there because I did homestays mostly, which I choose to do, in fact, on all my travels if I can. And in Russia, it's one of the things that can be done extremely easily. And it's a handy way, if you're an observer, of just sitting around with some of the 144 million. I'm trying not to say ordinary people because it's such an unattractive phrase, isn't it? But you know what I mean. It's, it's almost all Russians I'm talking about. And the television would always be on or they'd be hunched over their devices, as we all are in our own homes in the evening. And, of course, the uh, government controls the narrative entirely on the news, news narrative and the agenda. So it would just be endless loop story after story about how the West had, in fact, provoked this and provoked that. And Russia had had to invade the Crimea because of this and because of that. And it, the relentless agenda, Russia good, West bad, People are not easily fooled. However, when you're stoked with a load of data all the time that's not true, there's a sense of, well, I know he's a monster, but at least he's our monster, because the idea of the Western enemy was so fostered, so remorselessly, there's bound to be some degree of fear, trepidation in those people's hearts, even though I don't think there was really any misapprehension about the fact that the Swiss bank accounts were uh, 
overflowing um, with with booty and the yachts were sailing around the Black Sea of him and his cronies. But I think that they just accept that because it's been a fact of life of Russia for almost for all time. You know, one of the things, Michelle, when I started traveling in Russia for Mud and Stars, using the writers of the Golden Age as my guide, I was following in their footsteps, seeing what they'd written, having them guide me through. And one of the things I wanted to find out was what's changed. And it really turned out that nothing had. Uh, Okay, the externals of life had changed, but the internals of life in Russia hasn't changed. They haven't changed at all. I mean, the people I met, I stayed with, who are desperately poor, who um, are entirely reliant on a corrupt society from the top that we've been discussing, right down to the bottom of the most basic medical needs, schooling needs, university places, keeping your grandson out of the military. These are the things that the people I stayed with spend their lives trying to navigate and negotiate corrupt on that tiny, that small local level. And that's what people in Russia have dealt with for down the generations. It's just how life is. There's a saying that I can't tell you how many people repeated to me. We tried our best, but it turned out like before, which is what they've been told by one politician after another after the event when things have come crashing down around them scheme after scheme to improve the infrastructure and you know the infrastructure is really bad in Russia that's why I have I feel at this desperate time of war and these images that like everyone I can hardly bear to look at of convoys turning back of refugees and hospitals bombed and appalling loss of life and dare I say you know I know there's more to come I think about the people in Russia whom I stayed with who don't want war any more than you and I do and uh, things are looking extremely grim for the 144 million and it won't make the remotest difference to them whether quote winning or losing is written is chalked up on the board at the end of the day we know that it'll get spun into a win Uh, by the Kremlin, whatever happens. Um, But I don't really think it'll make the remotest difference to those 144 million um, at all. And the extraordinary thing I found, Michelle, travelling is that um, it's such a huge country, as you know, so vast, nine time zones, I think, uh, Moscow to Chukotka. I think there's an, an extra one if you add in Kaliningrad. It's not part of continental Russia, as you know. They keep changing it, actually, but I think it was nine when I was in the Far East, which, to my mind, is one of the most interesting parts of Russia. Absolutely vast. It's closed to foreigners. Well, I say absolutely vast. It's about the size of France. And there's no roads except in the capital, Anadir. And nothing goes on um, has ex- except there been marine mammal hunting and a little bit of reindeer herding, but mostly marine mammal hunting by the Tukchi indigenous peoples and a couple of other indigenous groups in the north there for many, many generations, long before the Cossacks. But they have been marginalised like most of uh, Russia's indigenous groups. Most astonishing number of um, indigenous Russian polar peoples alone, like 37 different groups with mutually unintelligible dialects. Absolutely fascinating. And so what else goes on there? As I say, the size of France and no roads. Well, 
desperate kinds of hard rock mining. And that's partly why it's still close to foreigners, because the Russian authorities don't want any foreigners to see what's going on, which is sort of unspeakable despoilation and pollution and goodness only knows what as is the case across the Russian Arctic, in fact. Uh, but my point is this, that I did a, a homestay in um, Anadir, in Chukotka. Uh, you might say, well, they even offer homestays when foreigners aren't allowed in, but that's one of the many mysteries of Russia. The Russian system are the answers to which um, is not for us to know. Uh, a fantastically, fantastic couple, delightful, in their 60s, um, a flat on the fourth floor, of one of those Khrushchevka 1950s built blocks, which I stayed all over Russia. But the interesting thing was there's very much a communist flavor that lingered. So for example, across these nine time zones, the bathroom mat would be the same as if there's one bathroom mat making factory in the whole of Russia, which I think probably there is. Uh, and always the, the bathroom itself was always the same, internal in, in the flat, you know, with no window. A washing machine next to the bath, but not plugged in, had a, a hoses, you know, trailing nomadically. And uh, um, laundry lines over the bath, of which there was always a display of uh, clothes. Mm -hmm. And um, for the traveller, the lone traveller, uh, particularly with a rather ropey Russian, this was all hugely comforting to go into yet another bathroom, which is exactly the same as the 45 one had been in before. Uh, and one of the idiosyncrasies of um, being in Russia. And, you know, Michelle, once you've seen quite a few of those type of flats and how people live, it does give you um, a different uh, opinion of the oligarchs. Um I don't suppose that most people listening to this podcast respect the oligarchs, particularly. Indeed, sometimes they can be a bit of a joke with the vulgarity of their money. But after you've spent a lot of time with Russian people, it's not funny. Nothing about the oligarchs is remotely funny now. And I just really want to read that more is being done to stop those people um abusing their economic privileges to the detriment of the 144 million and um i suppose spending time with people who are kind to you and uh that you see are just uh, human beings just like i am with all the the same faults and failings and doubts and aspirations and dreams um it's that's a great thing isn't it that's why travel is a great thing for stoking sympathy because that's 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 the key thing you need to you need to that one needs to see is that humanity is humanity in all its uh, horror um in the room i'm sitting in now and in that little bathroom in chukotka and i think that uh, the more understanding there is of that and the more we should be able to avoid the sort of populist nationalism that is one of the many reasons that leads to wars. The blurb um, to your book, Sarah, says that you kind of tackled this story at a time of deteriorating relations between Russia and the West. Of course, we did not know what was yet to unfold, but one of the goals it sets out was for you to search for the Russia not in the news um, but found amongst these 144 million people. And you found that in your travels, very evidently. And then there's Pushkin, of course, who writes about, can I use the word ordinary, Russian, and, and writes in the Russian language. His work so relevant then, today, probably tomorrow too. 
one of his best-known lines, which you quote in his play Boris Godunov, is Narod bezmorovstoviel, the people stay silent. Is that why we turn to the great Russian writers, this, this timeless universality, their ongoing relevance, their prescience even? Yes, that's one of the reasons. Pushkin is um, much beloved in Russia, and uh, one of the things I learned was how literature plays a much more important role in the Russian imagination. So most of these people I was staying with, uh, would have, they would have left school at 15 or 16, uh, not academics, in other words, and they had a very acute awareness and could rattle off, um, not perhaps not Boris Goodenough, but certainly the Bronze Horseman about Peter the Great standing on the shores and looking out at the, the spot where he founded Petersburg and so on. And um, I loved that, the way that uh, literature played a role in everyday life. I wish we had more of that here. I think in South America, too, that the poet in particular has a vatic role like that. I mean, I remember when I was in South America, anything big happening, and to turn on the six o'clock news, and they've got a poet on to pontificate, give her his view, you know. Um, and I can't really quite imagine that happening here. And I think that's right, that... Uh, the role of the poet and the writer should be elevated. And I and I did see that in Russia. And um, uh, I think that Pushkin, in the, that Boris Goodenough, the people stay silent and so on. I mean, it really is what I was just saying, that nothing's changed. The people had to stay silent then and the people have bloody well got to stay silent now. Otherwise, they will be punished. And that has always been the case. And Pushkin, in his poems and in his prose as well, um, gives something Russians to be proud about, despite that situation. There are many, many reasons to read all the Russians. Uh, I mean, Chekhov, in, in, way, in a way, would be smaller scale. Um, I don't ever think of Chekhov about being Russian. I think of him about being a person and grappling with the terrible um, instances of um, frustration and sorrow in everyday life. I, I've always found... Chekhov, the most humane of writers from that point of view. And then Dostoevsky, sort of the great huge expanses of the soul and ranting against God and then being in love with God and going to and fro between those two poles, as so many of us do. And the knowledge, of, first of all, of the futility of faith and then as the essential nature of faith and that os oscillation. I think that in that doubt and uncertainty, which is, to me, Dostoevsky, is, that's one of the, the many reasons why we read these people, because uh, whilst they have their genius, uh, to be able to transmute these things into words, it shows through their genius that they are like us. And while you're travelling through Russia amongst the millions, it's the, the writers who are your guides, they're, they're far from ordinary themselves, not least because of their prodigious talent, but but also because of their backgrounds, so their education, and some are even of the aristocracy. I wonder how you square that circle, or, or do we can we just bat it off as another Russian contradiction? Well, neither of those things. The fact is, is that most people who didn't have an education were too poor to be able to indulge in writing for a living. There wasn't a living in it. So, as is the case the world over. As a, because as the winners are the ones that write history, it's the ones who've got some economic um, freedom that are able to set things down. But the best writers, I think, 
don't write about their own kind. And certainly, uh, I mean, Dostoevsky, for example, was in a prison camp in a gulag. And it didn't matter how much education um, you had there. Um, and he wrote about that and the people he was with. So I think one sees humanity breaking through despite the undoubted privilege that you cite. To Leskov, for example, Nikolai Leskov, who's a short story writer that I feel has never had his due, really, in, um, in translation, even though lovely translations do exist. Uh, he was sort of obsessed with the ordinary people and particularly their simple face. He writes, writes a lot about orthodoxy, the role of the saints in the imagination of what were called peasants in his day. Um, it's a sort of extraordinary how those saints lived. They were living people in the minds of the farmers and so on that Leskov conjures in his stories. And uh, most of those people were couldn't read and write. They were illiterate. Um, and it was the, the saints and the folk tales, those two things together, that gave life meaning and Leskov interprets that world, which is one very far from grandeur and money and education, and shows, I think, that the meaning in him is no less meaningful than the, than the one we excavate on a daily basis by reading our books and doing our writing and thinking we're so frightfully clever. And is that why also then, because of this, um, where the privilege lay, that's why we don't, there's no women in your, in your book? Yes, regrettable, um, but there weren't any. Um, I was restricting myself to the golden age. I tried to make amends from that by doing portraits of the women I met as I'd moved through, but um, it was regrettable. And I think the only reason I could bear to do it was because the book I wrote before, which you mentioned, Oh My America, was about um, six middle-aged women writers like me who went to America to reinvent themselves in the... Um, middle third of the 19th century, which to me is the most interesting one in America. So um, I think it sort of gave myself some slight subliminal moral justification. And I just, you know, I, I just, Russians of the Russian writers of the golden age, there is no other group. They're not really a group, are they? A sequence of individuals like them. And uh, approaching the end of my career, I just felt, I knew I was going to have to write about them sometime. I wanted to. And it was the right time. Of course, there are women writers of the Golden Age. There were, but I was really focusing on the ones that, first of all, existed in translation because I wanted the readers of my book to be able to refer back. Um, and I didn't go into the 20th century when there are so many, of course, Akhmatova and so on. I, I do mention her, but I, my book, my story ends um, with the death of Tolstoy, so before Tsvetava and all those wonderful... Um, poetesses came along. So you caught me out, Michelle. Yes, I feel extremely sheepish about the fact that the writers in Mud and Stars are all men. Well, no, you also co-edited an anthology, Amazonian, the Penguin Book of Women's New Travel Writing. So I think um, you've done your due, Sarah. Let me off, thank you. Let's go back to the beginning of your obsession, if I'm allowed to call it that. Russia was your first overseas trip as a girl aged 11. What do you remember of that journey? Well, I remember a lot. Um, it was the most extraordinary thing. I come from a working class background in the West Country. And uh, of course, I was born in 1961. And of course, there wasn't really any foreign travel to speak of in the 60s for people like us. Nobody went anywhere. Not least except to Russia. Jet 
Devon and South Wales, not least to Russia. And package tours were just sort of making, so we're talking 1971, packing, package tours were just making their way onto the pages of the Daily Express, which was the only newspaper that ever came into our flat. And um, my mother, who, who left school herself at 15, um, had this peculiar idea that she'd been Russian in a previous existence. Nobody's ever been able to work out why she thought that, but she did. And suddenly the Daily Express revealed an advertisement for a package tour to Moscow and what was then Leningrad. Four days, uh, Moscow, four days, Leningrad, this package tour. And of course, in the Soviet era, one was absolutely... um, escorted everywhere but it was marvelous and did all the tourist things that um one would expect to do the ballet and the circus Karen Dash you know the few things anybody in Britain knew about Russia really and billeted in these enormous uh hotels where there was never any milk at breakfast despite there being 600 rooms and all the rest of it um and that was all very well and good until one day in one of those uh, hotels one morning um this group of uh, men shuffled in with ill-fitting suits and shamrocks in their um, buttonholes. Anyway, it turned out they were the Northern Ireland football team. And, I mean, George Best, Derek Dugan, and we were a football family, you see. My mother was Bristol Rovers and my father was Bristol City. I used to go with my dad to Ashton Gate to watch Bristol City every week. When I say every week, when they weren't at home, we would go and watch the reserves. Going to an away game would have been like going not to Moscow, to Mars. Anyway, so this football team shuffled in. They had a match and um, they came to talk to us because tourists were very unusual in Russia at that time. Of course, all my mother's ideas about being a Romanov in a previous existence went completely out the window. My father fainted clean away the prospect of Terry Neal, who was the player manager, and they gave us tickets to this match. And Karen Dash and everybody else was out the window and it was the absolute highlight. Explosively cold. Uh, I don't know why this package tour went in winter, but it did. And we watched the Greens go down one nil after Terry Neal himself conceded the penalty. It was the most enormous, the most tremendous highlight. And um, outside our hotel, there'd been some what news photographers, which had not yet called paparazzi, because they didn't exist in 1971, but... George Best was a superstar. Uh, and so there was a few photographers taking photographs of him for papers back at home. And they took a photograph of him speaking to my mother and I. And this photograph appeared, Michelle, in the Daily Express before we got home. And my entire family, everybody we knew, the whole street, I mean, the whole of Bristol, uh, saw us with George Best in the Daily Express. And I think they're still talking about it to this day. Love it. That was not the epiphany that I thought you were going to cite as kind of the moment when you wanted from then on to nurture and cultivate your interest in that part of the world. So you love Russia, I know. It's such a strange statement though, because it's so ethnically fragmented and, and socially divided too. What does it actually mean to say, I love Russia, if, if you even say that? Well, I I do say it, and I love its diversity. And I find the ethnic variegation and what links them and what um, they have in common and what makes them Russian, if anything. And the tremendous diversity, of course, as you'd expect in a place of that size of the landscape. And what is it exactly? What is that essential Russianness? Well, 
there isn't really anything called essentially essentially Russian, and there's certainly not a national character. But there is something that lingers, whether it's the scent of uh, a silver birch in winter or um, a she cabbage soup. There is something. It's ineffable, ineffable, and perhaps doesn't deserve to be pinned down like a butterfly. And uh, I think perhaps that writers about Russia are conjurers rather than lepidopterists, trying to um, just conjure something of that enormous land. I mean, do we sometimes um, overplay that size, you know, that vastness? We constantly hark on about Russia's expanse. And, and when it comes down to individual consciousness, uh, you know, writers scribbling away in a four-walled room, does it actually even matter? It. That's it. Uh, I don't think it matters much to them, no. They think they have an awareness of scale. Whether scale impinges on the artist's imagination, I think not. Otherwise, uh, everybody who comes from a small country would be a miniaturist and the reverse, which isn't the case. But I think that geography does inform the artist's imagination. A lot of people have written a lot about that. I think it's a fascinating topic. It's hard to come to any conclusions, nor would we want to. I, I certainly found very much that geography played a role in that way when I was in Chile, where I wrote my second book about Chile. And um, uh, of course, Chile is a absurd shape, so long and thin, like a ribbon. Uh, and you think, I partly why I went there was I thought, what does that woman at the top have to do with that woman at the bottom? How could they possibly have anything in common of the kind we're talking about? But then, of course, you look at the geography of Chile. They've got the driest desert in the world, the top, the Atacama. On one side, they've got the Andes. On the other side, they've got the Pacific. And at the bottom, they've got glaciers and land collapses altogether. So in a way, Chile is the most more of an island than any island. So the fact that that woman at the top is unified by language and all kinds of culture that's evolved over the years in the melting pot of South America, as each country of South America having blended with its uh, dastardly um, invaders and um, come up with this, with these, these very diverse cultures, um, in fact, more homogenous in Chile than in, than in its neighbours. But I found a very strong Chilean um, character and I found a very attenuated awareness of what a border is there because it's such a young country and only borders three other countries and sort of constantly on the verge of enormous squabbles with all three of them over some tiny bit of land that nobody wants, really. It's just that they do want to, to, to protect their, their borders for the sake of it, really. For example, I discovered in Chile that it's illegal to publish a map without the triangle of land they claim in the Antarctic. So even on a Boy Scout sleeve, when he's got a you know, badge on his sleeve showing he's got geography badge or whatever it is, you're not allowed to show that map of the long thin country without having that triangle of land. Now that claim to the Antarctic means absolutely nothing to anybody in any shape or form except this manufactured sense of the Chilean national identity because they claim it. And yeah, I mean, I thought there was maybe a greater obsession with borders and nationhood in Russia. You know, the writers often are asking, who are we Russians? Tolstoy particularly in War and Peace. It's often we Russians. And then the more ubiquitous, universal questions writers ask, which is, who are we? How should we live? But the, the kind of Russians often kind of come in at the very end of that, of that question. 
Yes, I think Tolstoy and certainly Turgenev and certainly Dostoevsky, their issue about Russianness was not so much to do with borders. It was to do with Slav versus West, which preoccupied all of them all the time and comes in a lot to War and Peace that you cite. Um, and it was this ambiguity of are our hearts Russian? Are we different to the West? Are we European? What is being Russian? Mother Russia, uh, the Orthodox Church, and that duality, should we be turning East or should we be turning West? Where does our hearts belong? And of course, as always with writers, the ambiguity of just going on and on about how fabulous Russian was and spending half your time in Germany at the gaming tables. Well, if you like it so much, why do you keep buggering off? A question one could ask many writers uh, throughout all time. One of my great heroes in Chile is Gabriela Mistral, a poet, who um, she uh, was the first South American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Not the first woman South American, the first South American which is quite something, I think, in an era when women were had very little freedom of education or of any kind at all. And she went on and on, wrote about Chile and the, you know, the homeland and um, how desperately important it was, and it was in her DNA and it was in her soul. But like most, she did leave, in fact, and lived in New York. So Chile was all well and good, but it seemed that New York was better. And uh, I'm only making fun of her a little bit. But there's certainly the contradiction in the Russian writers, not Tolstoy so much. Well, Tolstoy in his tastes and his reading, uh, his artistic tastes and so on. Uh, but someone like Turgenev spent almost all his time in Europe. And Dostoevsky himself, who was a great Slavophile, um, and I examined that in the book, that sort of ambiguity in him. Of why did he keep going to Europe? if he felt that Europe was the enemy in many ways of the great Russian sensibility. So I think it was more that duality than borders that obsessed the Golden Age writers. Pushkin was earlier, of course, than the ones I've cited, so less aware of the tremendous forces of the West that were going to start pushing down on Mother Russia, but he still does write about it quite a bit. One has to uh, cite Pushkin, as you mentioned at the beginning, as writing in Russian, because before him, it was either liturgical Latin or the educated classes like him spoke in French and wrote in French. And um, I can't remember what novel it is now that somebody says to a character, uh, oh, an old woman, uh, she asks for a novel and uh, her nephew says, um, uh, do you want one in Russian? And she said, no, I didn't think there were any in Russian. I meant in French. So I think that the explosion um, with Pushkin liberating uh, all the writers that came after him, that it was OK to write in Russian. Russian wasn't the language, the vulgar language of the people. And to write in the Russian that everybody spoke as well, not in the Russian that had come, been handed down and evolved by the church from liturgical Latin. I mean, you learnt Russian in order to read Pushkin. I have this very romantic idea of my last language. Um, I've learned quite a few languages. Well, not quite a few, but some. Um, I hadn't quite factored in how hard it is to 
uh, how age plays a role uh, in one's capacity to, I remember vocabulary. And so my attempts at learning Russian were um, less successful than they might have been. My aim was to be able to read a Chekhov short story um, in the original. Now, Chekhov's Russian was very clear and pretty easy. Um, and the story I chose was The Lady with the Little Dog, um, which I think we can all agree is one of the best short stories ever written. And I do have an odd vocabulary now of words like groin, with why that is. Uh, remember, that's where she walks along, you remember. And beret, of course, because uh, that's what she wore all the time. And um, Pomeranian, um, which was uh, the breed of dog and so on. Um, and I did manage to do that, but I would read, you know, with English on one side and Russian on the other. Um, but you are right when you suggest that the whole notion of translation interests me a lot. And I've done quite a lot of translating in my time, very little of it for publication, mostly for my own benefit. Um, but my degree was in modern languages. Is that I how you, Sarah, what... get to the heart of the matter, to the kind of heart of national consciousness? Do you think that's one of the best methodologies? Is everything else inadequate? I want to outlaw, outlaw or shut out people who don't speak languages. No. And we all know there are some writers that lose something in the original and a great translator can, can enhance something. Um, I find that I think the notion of language is um, interesting and in how, uh, yeah, from all kinds of points of view, I'm really interested in etymology as well in my own language. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot people can learn, even if they don't know foreign languages, um, through uh, studying writers and translation and how they, you know, clues from their translators about how they've managed to proceed and it's always very interesting to look at their statistics about how many more words you need translating from certain languages some more than others indicating the sort of precision um in some is reduced as is is a question of single words or like in german you know they have those portmanteau words where you just they all i've always thought a fantastic idea just could add words one to the other to make great train loads of carriages, meaning something fantastically complicated, but in one word. And the indigenous languages, I, I've always thought that, um, you know, that thing about the people of uh, Guam who have sort of hundreds and hundreds of different words for coconut. And um, some of the indigenous people I wrote about in Chile, no longer with us, our last one, um, passed away a long time ago now, the um, Yamana, Yagan. Yamano, Yamano or Yagan, they're called in the south of Tierra del Fuego there. And they lived off uh, shellfish from the fjords, which they were expert divers. Um, uh, and uh, they had a word in their language, which was three letters. And it meant to unexpectedly come across something hard when eating something soft. Because, of course, if you lived off oysters... That was kind of, first of all, a common experience, kind of an important one. And there's all kinds of ways in which you would you would um, wish to use it. And um, I very much like thinking about language and learning about language as ways of um, illustrating things are important, how things are important in certain countries and not in others. When, when you miss Russia, Sarah, what do you miss? I miss the people really sitting around moaning um, about their day-to-day -day lives and knowing that in the middle of it, there's a soft center or at least um, a yearning uh, for the center to um, melt a little bit. And uh, the landscape, 
um, around that surrounds them. Um, even the brutality of it. I remember being in one of those homestays in Irkutsk in Siberia in the winter. Um, and I was on a, a sofa bed and I remember peeping out at six in the morning from the curtains and everybody was scurrying to work and there was enormous amounts of snow on the ground and the sort of sodium glare of the streetlights and everything looked so brutal and yet so lovable, Russians carrying on in the way that they always have. I thought you might also say that you missed good long train rides because that was one of the lights that made me smile. It's, I love trains. That was just the entire sentence. Well, yes, I do love trains. I did the Trans-Siberian in winter. That's why I was in Irkutsk in winter. I got off in Irkutsk, and, which I would really recommend to anybody to do it in winter. There's no other tourists or foreigners on board to start with. And the tiger, which is this enormous swathe uh, across the whole of Russia, Chekhov said, only the birds know when the tiger ends. Um, and it sort of seems to go on for days and you get lulled into this fantastic, timeless sense, which still does remind me of Russia. Um, and then suddenly you'll pull in, might be in the middle of the night, to the most enormous station you've ever seen, like sort of vast Soviet militaristic wedding cake. They're all pe painted in pastel colours as well, really ornate, um, huge places. Uh, and you'll stop there for half an hour and the babushki will shuffle onto the platform selling sort of dried fish, you know, those ones that look like table tennis bats through the window. And um, then you, uh, and then contraband changing hands always in cardboard boxes, people in enormous fur, furry hats and coats swapping um, cardboard boxes. And uh, uh then the train rumbles out again and there'd be another three days of Tega. I absolutely loved all of that. I would do the Trans-Siberian in winter again any time. You're such a wanderer. And so many of the writers um, that you focus on in this book also are peripatetic. Do you think there's something inextricable about writing and, and travelling? I think they're very closely connected and I think it's very handy to think of traveling looking outwards and writing looking inwards as many writers have done um but I certainly don't think it's essential uh there are some of the best writers who you will feel have got the most um knowledge of the world in general who never have been anywhere but I do think that they're they're they're, they're can be closely bound together and in my mind they are for that inner outer business um and i mean but reading and writing are both dialectics aren't they i mean reading's a dialectic because you're in conversation with the text let's not say with the writer anymore since postmodernism not allowed to say that but with the text is it is a it is a dialectic and that's why we like it because we are allowed to respond in a personal way nobody's telling us how to respond and traveling is a is a transactional isn't it it's an interchange between the traveler and the outsider so in my own mind and certainly in my own working life those two things have been very closely connected although I would say reading and writing and travel rather than just writing and travel so I know I know London is home for you but where do you feel most at home well I feel most home most at home, wherever I am, when I'm feeling at home, if you see what I mean. And in the same way, I feel most alienated when I'm feeling most alienated wherever I am. 
I think one does carry home and sort of home, home and sort of peace of mind and sense of serenity and sense of unity with the world inside one's head. Um, and they're most wonderful feelings of being at home in the most unlikely and often not very nice places. In the same way, I'd be cuddled up in my own bed and feel. We all know that feeling, I think. Alienated and frightened. So I don't think I could pick a geographical location. And people often say to me, what's your favourite country? And I feel that is very much like boyfriends. You love the one you're with until you don't anymore. And look back at the other ones as sort of strange wonderment. And did I really go to that country? And then you step off the plane again and it's love all over again. Lots of mixed metaphors there, Michelle, but that's how I feel about those things. You write very touchingly that books have been kinder to you than life. Do you read for solace, then, for the balm that is Dostoevsky, maybe, as you put it? Uh, yes, people look who know anything about Dostoevsky always look at me in a very peculiar way, and I think that that tortured genius could offer balm. But I do think that books show us what we most need to know, which is what we're not that we're not alone. I think readers reading the great writers. Well, okay, let's put it more personally. When I read the great writers, I understand that anything I feel has been felt before. And that is the greatest solace of all. And at the end of the book, you make me smile again with another line, which is, writing is the best way of taking vengeance on life itself. Yes, it's redemptive, isn't it? You might be knocked down, but you can write a robust paragraph, and that is redemption. I do believe that. And even if um, one's, one's somehow transfiguring one's own negative experience and making it into something lapidary on the page. Uh, yeah, I really believe that, that, that writing is redemptive. And so will we get more vengeance with more books from you? More vengeance? Well, yes, but I, li I like to think it's never overt. Um, it's never score-settling in any kind of overt way. One has to be much more cunning about it than that and appear as a much better person than one actually is. Sanctify it all with some sort of universality uh, whilst putting the boot in at every opportunity. So tell me about the next one, Sarah. I've seen your, your posting from Zanzibar. Tell me about the travels for the next book. Yes, so I've got a book coming out next year, Michelle, which I'm finishing at the moment, and I'm absolutely loving it. And it's a travel memoir. It's the story of a woman's life on the road from nubility, so in my 20s, to invisibility. I just turned 60 last year. Um, and it's about, uh, yeah, about, it, about being a lone woman on the road and how people's reaction to one change one changes as one goes through all those periods including a sort of central belt in the middle when you've got um one has children in tow um and themes that have interested me the whole way through those 40 years women the role of women the church which you've mentioned already the role of religion uh how you know i think religion is interesting largely because it um is what distinguishes people humans from the animals uh, this sort of need to reach for the transcendental which i've seen again and again in indigenous peoples in russia and elsewhere um, so it's not so much the ritualized religion uh, there's what religion means today the one people once people go to war for but that that tend that need deep need of the human spirit to reach out for the transcendental so all that kind of stuff um, is all woven in and the tenth and final chapter of my memoir which as yet is untitled um is i wanted to be not all the old old stories that i was telling with all of that in mind but all new stories so i went to zanzibar for five weeks 
um, over Christmas, had an absolutely wonderful time, loved it there, never been before. Um, really fantastic dose of Kiswahili culture um, and um, uh, sat and wrote there as well as absorbing all the stuff that was going on around me. And so the book will end uh, with me on a beach in Zanzibar looking out at the Dows uh, sailing off there through the Indian Ocean. And um, yes, yeah, so I said the book's untitled and um, quite a few of my heroines um, come in. I have in this book tried to concentrate on women writers who've, uh, well, I have actually, I've written exclusively about women writers who've written about place. My heroines have all come in and one of them is Martha Gellhorn, who, as you know, was a foreign correspondent amongst other things. She wrote fiction too. In my opinion, a tremendous writer at her best, one of the best, and a incredibly interesting woman too and she wrote somewhere that um oh well if we think about traveling it's just um everybody else always seems to do it better than one and one gets in a furious temper for people for annoying one and it's um makes you frayed and bitter and i really want to have that for my title frayed and bitter a woman's life on the road i haven't I'll put that to my publisher yet. And I know they're going to say it's much too negative. That is but I think be tough to sell, Sarah. I, I think Frayed and Bitter is uh, is a great title. Um, and another one I had in mind was the was Deep, Deep Peace, because of that wonderful saying, the deep, deep peace of the double bed after the hurly-burly of the chaise longue. Um, and there's something about uh, coming to rest in old age. Well, people are saying now, as I say that um, invisibility is the end of my memoir, they say, well, what about immobility? So I've realized that that's going to be the next volume, but we won't worry too much about that yet. I can't imagine you immobile. I think you will always wander. You might even still move. Would you move to Russia, for example? Do you know, I don't think I will move for good anymore. I think I'm too much here. Um, those days have gone. I've lived a year here and a year there. Um, but more than that, really. Uh, but I think um, I can't see the twilight years um, being played out in the Tager. No. But who knows? Never say never, Michelle. Never say no. I'm going to find you on an adventure somewhere, Sarah. Sarah Wheeler, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Really enjoyed it. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent. Me and Ultimate Library. Goodbye.